This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I had already programmed my DVR to watch this show. And then she says, this is the executive producer. This is one of the producers, the writers of Godfather of Harlem. I was like, what? And then I looked at him, and I was like, what you talking about, Willis? (laughs) (laughs) I said, there better be somebody black involved. He said, all right, I'm going to bring a black person with me. No, he didn't say that. (laughs) Let me welcome to the show. Film writer, producer, showrunner. He also did Narcos the first season. Showrunner of Godfather of Harlem, Chris Brancato. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you, Karen. And executive producer who plays Junie Bird on Godfather of Harlem, which is on Epics. Epics, E-P-I-X, this Sunday, September 29th. Marquan Smith, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, all right, I'm going to start with Marquan. <laughs> That's Let's how go. we do that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> What is your experience with like what's your connection to this whole story? Because I watched the original, the one with Cicely Tyson, and and uh, was, was it was it it's what, in one of my top five? Oh my god, Lawrence Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne. Mm-hmm. I wrote oh, wait, that. every he's the guy, stop, that stop lying. He's the guy that you gotta it. stop. Okay, that's in my top five. Hold on, hold on, Chris. That is in my top five. Everybody films. and their mothers in that movie, and, and it is yeah, awesome. Oh, yeah, that's right. Hoodlum, Hoodlum. is amazing. Okay, Hoodlum is. Chris, Look, let me say this, Karen. Where First, did you grow up? I come on, he's about to tell us. Yeah. All right, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Ah. And uh, my best friend in college was a guy named Paul Eckstein, an African-American fellow whose grandmother was put through college by Bumpy Johnson. And so Paul would always say to me as I was embarking on my career as a screenwriter, yo, there's a guy named Bumpy Johnson who nobody writes about. You got Don Corleone, you got Tony Soprano, you got you got you got Scarface, you got Carlito. Where the hell is the African American gangster in movies and film? And I started to look into Bumpy's background, and 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 Paul and I talked about it. So Paul and I co-produced Harlem together. Uh, sorry, Hoodlum oh. together. Uh, and uh, and then 22 years later, Mr. Marquand Smith came to me and Paul and said, "Hey, do you want to revisit Bumpy Johnson? But now, not in the 1930s, like you wrote your movie. Why don't you do? Let's do it in the 60s, because Bumpy's criminal career spanned four decades." So Marquand is the initiator wow. of this project, and he can explain how he came Marquand to it. Marquand Smith, why do you know 1960s Bumpy, <laughs> Bumpy Johnson? Well, well, the story was like very dear to my heart uh, since the year 2001. There was a young lady by the name of Margaret Johnson, who's my godmother. Now, Margaret is actually Bumpy's granddaughter, but Bumpy raised her like that was his daughter. And she used to tell me these magical stories every time I used to go visit her on Lenox Terrace about in the 60s, walking down the street and hearing Sam Cooke's voice coming out of transistor radio, or going past Sugar Ray Robinson and seeing Nat King Cole getting a haircut, or James Brown's name on the marquee. And she wanted her father's story to be told to the world, and I made her a promise, and it took me 18 years to actually Mm. grant her promise. I wish she was here to see this, but I know she's smiling down. Um, she met all the producers and she co-signed and was like, these are the guys that's going to break my bring my father's story to fruition. Uh, fruition. Hmm. From a, because everybody, there's a lot of people that want to get into this business, you know. Um, it's really about relationships though, right? Yep. So how did you really connect with Chris? Well, you know, I like I said, I've been, I've been on this path trying to help her on this project for 18 years. And um, I was introduced to my my business partner Jim Atchison by a friend of mine named Bernard Alexander. Bernard, I just uh, talked to Bernard last week. 
This is too weird. Okay. So Bernard introduced me to Jim and myself and Jim, we sat down over the phone. We had we didn't even meet. And I basically told him the story that I wanted to do about a a Harlem gangster by the name of Bumpy Johnson, who wasn't just a gangster, he was also a philosopher. He read Nietzsche, he read Shakespeare. He was the only African-American that could sit down at the table with Maya Lanxey and Bugsy Siegel and Frank Costello and Lucky Luciano. And Jim was like, wow, this is an amazing story. I'm a white boy from Boston, but I, I know about Bumpy Johnson. So you only saw Bumpy in the Cotton Club, or you might have seen him in Hoodlum or, or uh, American Gangster. We wanted to tell a different narrative. So I did a lot of homework and research in the Schomburg Museum you know, before I went out actually to go to Forest to make sure that we had a sellable project, me and, uh, me and uh, myself and Jim. So after we developed the project, I got an IMDb Pro one night. <laughs> I just and got look, a subscription to that. And looked up all, all the credible movies that I thought was my favorite, Gangsters. And I ran into this young man, Chris Brancato. And I called Jim one night. I said, do you know Chris Brancato? He said, yeah, he lives right across the street from me. He comes, over for, uh, he comes over to eat every Sunday. So it seems like the stars just all the line with wow. Chris. Paul mm. flew out here and we That's met. Wow. Yeah, the universe that. just it conspired. conspired. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, I, yes. and I felt real comfortable because he already knew the lay of the land from Hoodlum. Right. He already knew who Bumpy was, but he told it from the Harlem Renaissance perspective of Bumpy and Dutch Schultz. And we decided, let's, t- let's tell it from the 1963 perspective. And what's powerful about this, because this country was actually um, founded by gangsters. And we we celebrate and glorify no it's robber barons mm-hmm. robber barons and we celebrate them when they when they have no melanin and we we glorify Camelot you know yeah. bootleggers and you mm-hmm. know all manner of criminal mm-hmm. but Bumpy Johnson had like you just mentioned and others if we want to even go to I don't want to talk about Fat Cat and Supreme but e- even in the midst of their illicit behavior thought about the community. They would fund the youth uh, games and and all of the tournaments, and they would put 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 people through school like you're talking about quietly, you know. And I struggle with it because on one hand we shouldn't glorify and celebrate, right. you know, the underbelly, but at the same time, unfortunately, there aren't too many avenues for people to become uber wealthy in the hood, and it's on purpose. So, Chris, you know, as you've been, you know, researching, talk to me about that. Well. You're right on point. The fact is this. The way Forrest, myself, Marquand, Jim, and Paul Eckstein, my co-writer, looked at this was you come to this country, immigrant groups or second-class citizen groups come, and they they can't get a medical degree or a, or a law degree. The avenue to economic advancement is crime because there's no barrier to entry. So Italian, Irish, German, African-American, crime has been a stepping stone to economic power, which leads to political power and then social and cultural power. There's one fundamental difference, of course. Italians, Germans, Irish came here voluntarily. African-Americans, not necessarily so. So there's huge differences, but also that fundamental thing of chasing the American dream by any means necessary is common to all these groups. Mm -hmm. Forrest jumped on that right away. He said, this is a show about the American dream by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. And then when we discovered from speaking with Margaret Johnson that Bumpy and Malcolm X played chess in that Lennox Terrace apartment where we interviewed her every Sunday, Every Sunday, yeah. Wow. Paul and I were looking at the at the at the material, and we were like, "Yo, this is 
the combination of crime and civil rights in the early 60s, militant civil rights. We knew we had an angle on the show that was different than any gangster show you'd ever seen. The hardest thing in the world is to write a gangster show, no matter what you're writing, Italian, Irish, German, African American, it's hard because the tropes are all the same. Oh, forget about it. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's hard to do something new. But when we looked at the subject matter, we were like, we can create this collision of crime and civil rights, and it'll give us an opportunity to look at things that are still going on today, mm. but through the safety of the past. So for instance, we deal with police brutality. We deal with a heroin crisis. We deal with uh, left, right, political divisions. We deal with black, white, race relations. All of that stuff that if you were making the show contemporary right here and now, it would be a little too hot to handle. But we put it back in the past there and we can examine all of these things and yet you're getting this glorious world of Harlem of 1963, a Harlem that no longer exists. But we all remember it, or we or we remember an image of it in our mind, mm. and that's what we were trying to duplicate here. We're and talking with Chris Brancato. I just want to reset Chris Brancato and Marquan, Marquan Smith, right? Yep, and to expand on Chris, what I liked about the angle was Harlem Riots is Al Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Yes, Harlem Riots were James Powell getting shot, and four days after he was shot, a, a protest led to four days of intense rioting. and. Marquand and I are looking at this stuff and going, hey, man, this is there yeah. are a lot of similarities Cassius here. Clay is our Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. So everything is so that parallel to what's yes. what's happening in 63 and 2019 America. We're talking about Godfather of Harlem starring the great Forrest Whitaker, also Paul Servino, Giancarlo Esposito. Um, Swiss Beats did the, the soundtrack. Oh, so this whole thing is fire. Yes. Oh, yes. From, Swiss, start, yes. from the opening like credits Swiss. to the ending. So here's the plan we had from the very beginning. We go, okay, when you hear a radio, you're going to hear Sam Cooke or you're going to hear Martha and the Vandellas, Motown, Doo-Wop, what have you. Oops, that's my phone. Okay. Um, right. and Who's calling? Somebody's calling Chris right now. Chris, like, you're on a Karen Hunter busy. show. Tell them we're busy. Hey, Karen Hunter show. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what we wanted to do, though, was have the period music coming out of radios be absolutely authentic and accurate. But we also wanted to suggest that there was contemporary parallels to this show. So we're looking around at the best music producers in the business, and uh, Swizz came to our attention. We met with him, and what these, these guys are real busy. So you need to find a music producer who's going to say, you know what, I'm going to make this priority number one. And what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to just go license Kendrick songs or whatever Jay-Z songs and stick them on the show. What we wanted to do... What we wanted I to got do, your back. Let me cut it off for you. Right. Okay. What we right. wanted to do was uh, have music that was created specifically for the show. So after we finish the 10 episodes, we hand the 10 episodes over to Swizz. He does a writing camp at his recording studio on 27th Street. Every night, a different artist coming in. Rick Ross, DMX, mm. John Legend, uh, ASAP Ferg, one after another. And they're watching the pilot of the show, and they're looking at the particular episode where they're going to create music. Swizz has selected a beat. They sit there. They listen to the beat. They're scribbling their thing. Boom, they're in the recording booth and creating music specifically for the film footage that, that we're going to apply So this to. creative process is absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah, so it was like yeah, nothing start to finish. It was a big writer's camp. Swizz, yeah. Swizz is a genius. I really no, he yes, is. Yes, he is. He no, is, most absolutely. definitely. Student of the crowd. As I'm listening to you, I'm wondering how you obviously have enough money and agency to do it properly, right? What does that, is, is it the narcos? Like what gave you the springboard to be able to sit and have such a measured 
deep dive into something that because this requires a lot of money and time and you know bring on a swizz beats original music how did how did you get to that part point well that's a very good question first off this is an impossible sale you're you're walking into hollywood which is essentially white hollywood and you're saying oh I want six million in an episode to make a show about uh, a, a, a period of Black history. Six in the million 60s. an episode. Mm-hmm. Just pause for a second because I'm, I'm my feelings are hurt right now because <laughs> Underground was a million dollars an episode and we couldn't get that back on the air. Six million an episode. Mm-hmm. You yeah. walk in and they tell you what? Well, in in most cases, first of all, I said to Marquand from the very beginning, I said, "Hey, be prepared for a noble failure. We're going to figure out something great. We're going to write a great script, but." Be prepared for everybody to pass on it. And so, so, and in fact, on the first go around, Netflix, for whom I co-created Narcos, and other places, they passed on it because they asked themselves, what wide audience is going to watch this little sliver of history? We believed in it the whole, I know, I know, I see that expression Do they understand the background? Yeah. And, 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 no, they don't. No, they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't. And, and FYI, it pops. FYI, it pops. if you look at the trades, exactly. Netflix has just... Doing a Nikki Bond story with Will Smith. Mm. So what we did, we we were yeah, the don't ask me to comment on that. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't. You know, I but that the fact of the matter is that um we dived so deep and Chris with his 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 amazing writing, we wanted to tell a story that that's never been told Let before. Let me tell you, um when I found out that Chris Brancato Brancato what, what is the um background of Brancato? Brancato, Italian. Brancato. So what does that mean? I'm Sicilian. Okay, I you know, see. I write the I guineas. You... I write the guineas in the show too. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not touching that. You, you do that, I'm not going to do that. But but what you did with Narcos to the point where I couldn't stand the little fat kid. The whole story, the deep dive, like you know there was this 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 touch that you had that narcos, was bro- was, narcos was brilliant was amazing my, i will tell you this my husband and i watched it in one night like seriously we stayed up all night watching narcos well thank you for that but i'll tell you this and not after, doing other stuff that after finishing the first season of narcos <laughs> and after finishing the first season of this it's my belief just as a writer this is better godfather of harlem's mm. better it's i believe deeper, i believe that it's about more important subject matter to, to be quite honest and um yeah, I mean, so, let's let's go back to the business because okay, so six so, million an episode. So I call I call Marquan after we go through that first round of sales, and 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 we're like, hey, he, he, you know, he's disappointed. I say, hey, look, I told you it might be a noble failure, but noble failures have a way of coming back around. So cut to two, three months later, we get word. My agent calls me. He says, hey, some new guy just took over Epics. His name's Michael Wright. He's looking for an R-rated drama. And I sent him Godfather of Harlem, and he lost his mind. He wants to see you, Forrest, Marquand, and Paul as soon as possible. Two days later, we go in. We sit down, and I start to explain that this show is the collision of crime and civil rights, and it's about more than just being a gangster show. And at one point, we were talking about the fact that in early Harlem at the time, there was some spoken word music going on that was gonna was the the ancestor of of hip hop and rap. Mm-hmm. And so we and it's a song actually by the Shy Lights called "Have You Seen Her?" And mm-hmm. that begins with about a minute of spoken word. Yes. So I start to I start to say, "Hey, so the beginning of the Shy Lights song, Have You Seen Her?" is." And Michael Wright starts singing, Have You Seen Her? And Forrest is sitting on my right, and he's a former opera singer. They both start singing, Have You Seen Her? together. And I'm sitting there like, oh, yeah, this is mm. good. Yeah, I got the head of the network singing with my star. How and important is the narrative? He bought it in the room. Um, uh, the narrative. Your, your, 
elevator pitch or whatever they call it. How important is telling that story? Because a lot of people have a great idea, but they don't know how to verbalize it. Well, I think the thing you have to do in today's world, you look around, there's 500 television shows on. You can't even determine which one to watch, right? right? Mm -hmm. I think you have to be able to, one, one key is say something in one sentence and put two things in the sentence that don't belong together. So for instance, when I said, hey, this show is the collision of criminal underworld and the civil rights movement in early 60s Harlem. Everybody goes, what, what did crime have to do with the civil rights movement? Well, all of Malcolm X's soldiers were former gangbangers on the yeah. streets of Harlem. Mm -hmm. Bumpy Johnson was deeply uh, involved with, with Malcolm, with Amiri Bakara, other people in the neighborhood who, 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 who were pushing for civil rights. So the intersection is something that's worth writing about, worth talking about. And what Malcolm said, which I really take to heart, is the gangster is the hero of the urban ghetto because he's made it. He's climbed that ladder that so few others can climb. And when that gangster gets a political consciousness, America will tremble. Watch out. And so that was part of his, you know, his belief system. And so it made perfect sense to do a show about the collision of pol politics and gangsterism. And then you look at Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who's only Is been- Is he in this? You got that's Amir Giancarlo, Giancarlo, Giancarlo. Yeah, he plays Adam Clayton Powell. Giancarlo. And he yeah. kills it. Karen, he kills okay. it. No, I'm no, sure no. he does. Well, he got the hair. He got the hair. No, no. Karen, you his, watch his it. Giancarlo is... His mannerisms, his mannerisms, he takes on Adam Clayton Powell. Like Adam Clayton Powell, he becomes Adam Clayton Powell. Can I have a question? Why is it still so hard for Hollywood to respect or even believe in the validity of these kinds of films when we understand that and we know that diversity and inclusion across industry, even in Hollywood, makes for bigger sales, it makes for wider audiences, it makes for more money. Why is it still such a fight to well, get look, it done? Look, this, this is my perspective, one man's opinion only. The people that I deal with out there uh, 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 are not racists. They're as interested in trying to um, achieve a diverse programming slate as anybody else. The problem is this. There's a little bit of institutional racism. I'll give, I'll give you an example. Uh, a show that deals with black characters and black themes is generally thought to not sell well overseas. Well, a big way that they make their money on recouping their money on these shows is selling it overseas. So, so they've been conditioned to think because, by the way, some, like for instance, Black Lightning does very well here. It doesn't Not, do well overseas. But Black Panther. But Black Panther did. killed all overseas, over the world. Yeah. Right. So again, it's a case-by-case -case basis. But institutionally, Hollywood is frightened to lose money. You know, in other words, they right. don't want to lose money. That makes but sense. But they lose money all the time. They do. They spend money on dumb stuff that nobody would ever watch. On Waterworld, anyone? Child. Um, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so get Water back World, to the money. Waterworld, anyone? I, I'm I, still I, stuck. I know the producer of Waterworld. Afterward, I said to him, so what do you think? He goes, man, I'll never even drink the stuff again. Hilarious, <laughs> hilarious. So he's very dry and ashy. Six million dollars an episode. Ten yeah. episodes. Yeah. Ten episodes? Mm -hmm. Is that the first Ten one? Episodes, Ten episodes, yeah. Oh, sixty million dollars. But what it takes, Karen, Talk to me. It, it takes an executive like Michael Wright to sit there and, and, and you know, he's, he's a white guy and he saw it. He saw the vision. The minute we were saying it, I saw it in his eyes. He understood what we were trying to do. I said, hey, Cassius Clay comes into Harlem in 1963 to fight Doug Jones. But Cassius Clay wants to be a Muslim. If sports reporters find out he's a Muslim before he wins the championship, his career is over. Yes. And so I just, I could tell he was entranced by this story. Before I even finished the pitch, he said, you know what? I don't want to be coy. I'm buying 10 episodes. Let's negotiate for the series. 
And what you do when you're sitting in that room, you go, okay, let's go. Yeah, We're getting yeah, out, yeah, out of here. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, okay. okay. So right. what's the next step? Hold on. What's the, after you get the okay, you run out, you guys pop bottles. What did you do, Marquand? You know what? <laughs> I, I actually was, and I'll New tell York. you, I'll tell you this. I was actually in New York, and um, this was. I mean, I, I tell Chris all the time. Chris is an established writer. He's written for many people, but I didn't have a plan B. I had a plan A, so I couldn't fail. This had to be a win situation for me. And uh, I left my phone in the car. Forrest, I missed six phone calls from Forrest. I picked up the phone, he said, hey, why are you not picking up your phone? We just sold it in the room. I went upstairs and I did some WWE move to my mother and I said, I told you he did it. So, you know, I was just so happy and I was so excited. How does that change your life? And how long did it take? So this was how many months ago? Uh, what, how many uh, months? We started it? shooting about a year ago. Yeah. So this was okay. a year and a half 11th, ago. September 11th of last year we wow. started. That okay. was our zero day. Yep. When? Wow. When did your life change? My life changed as soon as they said lights, camera, action. That's it. It changed. And well, how? the interesting thing. Sorry to interrupt, but you know, Marquand was developing this because he's an actor. He he's one of a million actors who's trying to develop material for himself. And I must say this. So I said smart. this to him many times. I said, "Look, man, the chances of an actor developing something from jump and then it actually gets on the air ten episodes, Marquand, it's literally ten thousand to one what you're doing, what you've done." And Marquand has a substantial role in the show, and 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 so for for me, it's gratifying because I don't I wouldn't have been involved in this had it not been for his initial mm -hmm. passion uh, Paul was the one who convinced me to write about Bumpy Johnson in the movie hoodlum so this feels like it's all coming full circle and let me say one other thing Karen about what you talked about yeah I'm a white guy but I believe this I believe a writer black white Asian Latino can write about any other culture but you have to try then to pull in to your circle people who do understand. So for instance, my writer's room had African-American writers, Larry Andrews, Rashida Brady, Moses Vernot created Violence Money and Violence, Money, Money and Violence, violence. Uh, 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 Paul Eckstein. In other words, if you come into it with the right spirit and what you're trying to do is capture the authenticity and essence, then it doesn't matter what color you are. You just got to get it right. Yep. I agree with you.